frequently asked questions. These are the questions that we've been getting for the last uh, 15 years, uh, questions that have been coming to us, uh, challenged by Muslims, uh, usually at Speaker's Corner where I go every Sunday when I'm in town there in London. We have found that many of the questions tend to be the same. Uh, we're finding that even when we go to other countries, uh, I was in Kazan last year, I was in Kyrgyzstan this year, I go down to South Africa, and we're finding regardless of where we are in the world, we get the same questions, the same basic, uh, same 20 questions with variations on the theme. So what we thought we would do is try to come up with answers to every one of these questions, which I'm going to share with you now. And obviously there are thousands of other questions that we don't have time to do uh, go into. So let's go with these questions and see how we can answer them. And then you can use them or find other ways of doing it on your own. But let's go ahead and start with the most important question, the one that comes up more than any other, and that is the authority of Scripture. Muslims believe that this is their authority, and whenever we bring up the Quran, and whenever, I'm sorry, whenever we bring up the Bible, and whenever we look at and use uh, references from within the Bible, because everything we say should come out of the Bible, immediately they say that this is corrupted. They don't accept it as authoritative. Both the Old and the New Testament, they say, is corrupted. Now, I answer just by, basically, I give two small, quick, little words. Where and when. Do the same. See what happens. Respond right quickly. Where was it corrupted? When was it corrupted? Normally, they won't have an answer for that. So help them out. Say, well, was it corrupted before the time of Muhammad or after the time of Muhammad? Before the 7th century or after the 7th century? Now, they should have a response, either one or the other. Normally, they'll say before the 7th century, before Muhammad. If that is the case, then just look at the Quran itself and just start reading off some of the references. Let me give some of them right here to you right now. Surah 3, Ayah 2, and Ayah 78. Surah 4, Ayah 135. Surah 6, Ayah 34. Surah 10, Ayah 64. Surah 18, Ayah 26. Surah 35, Ayah 42. And Surah 50, Ayah 28 and 29. All of which say that God's word does not change. God does not change his word. Verse after verse after verse after verse. You can see how many verses I've given you here. All stipulating that God's word does not change. So how in the world are they permitted to say that this book has been changed if this is God's word? And they are clear that God did send the Taurat to Moses and the angel to Jesus. So how could God's word change when there's so many references that say to differ? Now, Surah 2, 136 and Surah 3, 2 to 3 go on to say that there's no difference between these two books. There's no difference between God's word, the Bible and the Quran. What's more, if Muslims say that the, Quran, that the Bible has been corrupted, then take them back to Surah 1094 and Surah 21.7, both of which say, if you Muslims have any questions, go to the people of the book, because they have been given the Taurat and the Injil there to come to us and ask us if they have any question. Surah 29, Ayah 46 is my favorite one because it says, do not dispute with the Christian. I love that one. Oh, I use it at Speaker's Corner all the time. They're not to dispute with us. Why? Because we have been given the Taurat and the Injil as signs for them. Surah 4, 136 is even more specific. O ye Muslims, go to those scriptures that have come before you, for they are signs for you. This scripture is there for as a sign for them. And then Surah 5, 
Isaiah 46 and 47, also Isaiah 68, tell us Christians to go back to our own scriptures because they're signs for us. So now look, take, ask, just ask your question. Ask one simple question. If the Bible had been corrupted, then why in the world does the Quran over and over and over again tell them to come back to it? Why would it tell them to come back to a corrupted scripture? Why is there no warning that it has been corrupted? And I've asked this for 25 years. Show me one reference in the Quran that stipulates that the previous scriptures have been corrupted. There is none. Oh, there's a reference here. There's a reference there. Warning the Muslims to be careful about those uh, who, who uh, change the scriptures in the present tense that are changing it at the time of Muhammad. Be careful of the Jews who put their hands over scripture to hide it from you. That's not saying the scriptures are corrupted. All it's saying is there are people who are writing other things beyond scripture. And that happens all the time. We have the same thing with the Bible. In Proverbs 8, 8 says the very same thing. Beware of the lying pens of the scribes, it says. Because they pervert the scriptures. The fact that they talk about scriptures means that there's a scripture there to be perverted. We know this. There's the apocryphal writings. There's many apocryphal Jewish writings. There's the sectarian writings, the monarchic writings, the docetist writings. There are many Christian, uh, basically heretical writings that existed in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th century, all of which we are to be wary of, and the Quran's basically warning them of the same thing. Be wary of those who pervert the scriptures, of the Jews who change the scriptures, meaning the scriptures in the 7th century. Nowhere is it referring to the earlier scriptures. Otherwise, it would just eradicate all these references that we've just read through. By that time, the Muslims realized that, of course, it could not be before the 7th century. Otherwise, the Quran would have warned them. So the corruption must have happened after the 7th century. Well, then just use what we've talked about when we were talking about the Bible. Just look at the enormous amount of authority that we have. Over 26,000 manuscripts we have of the Bible of New Testament alone. 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin Vulgates, another 9,000 many other and other translations. Over Talk about translations alone, we have over 19,000 translations in 11 different languages. The 2,135 lectionaries. But more than that, they were all written, these 2,000 lectionaries were written before the Quran. We have 230 manuscripts of the New Testament that were written before the Quran. We have entire New Testament there in the Sinaiticus that's there in London. That's from the 4th century. That's 300 years before the Quran. The Alexandrinus right next to it. The entire Bible from the, fourth, from the 5th century. Excuse me. The Vaticanus, which is the entire Bible from the 4th century. So three of the Metropolitan Codices of the entire New Testament and the Bible, three to 200 years before the Quran. If we had corrupted it after the Quran, what are you going to do with all these manuscripts? What are you going to do with all the early church fathers' quotations? 36,000 of them that predate the 4th century, that are 300 years before the Quran. So many that Dr. Dalrymple and Bergon were able to reproduce almost the entire New Testament, all 27 books of the New Testament, except for 11 insignificant verses, just by putting all those quotations in chronological order. And they all predate the Quran by 300 years. So there's no way in the world that we could have corrupted it after the Quran, because then we'd have to go and change all 19,000 translations in all 11 languages, change all 24 to 26,000 manuscripts. We have to change all 36,000 quotations. Quotations. Can you see the miracle of what they're saying we've done? No one know about it, and they all agree. Now, by that time, usually the Muslims are pretty well have conceded the point. We have not. We certainly, they cannot prove that we have corrupted it. 
They cannot provide a when or a where. Very simple. You ask them, put them on the defensive, make them come up with where we've done it and when we've done it. Before or after Muhammad, in both cases, there's no way that they can support what they've said. The second question that always comes up is, how can Jesus be the Son of God? And there is a confusion here. In Surah 6, Ayah 101, and in Surah 5, 17, it's, uh, it's, it assumes that the Son of God, Jesus, is a biological son, that there's a biological relationship, that God somehow birthed Jesus. Now, we're not believing that at all. It's obvious that no way that anybody in this room, and certainly in the scriptures, there's no reference anywhere that Jesus was birthed by God. No. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He has always existed. He has pre-existed Jesus. He was there co-creating with God at the very beginning. No, there was no biological relation. So what does this mean? Well, Luke 2.49 helps us here. Luke 2.49 uses the word monogenes, that he is the begotten son. He is the monogenes, or monogenes, one and only son. He's a unique son. It's a relational title. The Son of God is a relational title. And the best way to help Muslims understand that is to go back to the Quran itself. In Surah 2, Ayah 177, you have the reference to Ibn Ul-Sabili. Ibn Ul-Sabili is a traveler. Somebody who's traveling along the road is a son of the road. Now, nobody in their right mind thinks that someone who's traveling on the road is actually born out of the ground of the road. No. Ibn Ul-Sabili basically is a relation. He has a relationship with the road. I am a son of America. You are all sons of your own countries any, or daughters of your own countries. That doesn't mean that you were born out of the earth of the country. No, this is relational. It's quite well used in many, uh, many con contexts. So nowhere do we mean by son of God that we're saying that Jesus is a biological son. Not at all. There's a confusion here, and Muslims need to recognize that. I think part of the confusion may have also come out of Surah 5, 116, which stipulates and basically assumes that both Jesus and Mary are part of the Godhead, seeming to suggest that God had sex with Mary and from their progeny came Jesus. Now, if that is the case, then they've got a pretty warped view of the Trinity. Nobody, I don't think, in this room believes that Jesus and God, uh, Jesus came from a, a union of God and Mary. There's no Christians that believe that. But more than that, I find it ironic that the Muslims are asking the question in the first place. If they have a problem with God having a son, then they're going to have to question their Quran. Because in Surah 39, Ayah 4, it states that very thing. If God so had willed it, it says in Surah 39, 4, he could have a son. There it is in black and white. The Quran admits that God can have a son, a biological son. It makes no bones about the fact that God can or cannot have a biological son. So why are they questioning the Bible to begin with? The irony is that we're not saying he did have a biological son. The fact that they question it means that they're going to have to question the Quran as well. So it flips right back on them. The real question they're really talking about, though, is not whether or not God had a son or did not have a son, or whether Jesus was that son. What they're really questioning, and the problem that they're really having, is could God ever enter time and space? Could God ever become a man? That's the real question. How could God become a man? And that's one I get from Muslims all the time. And I have to scratch my head on this one. I remember I did a debate up in Kazan in, in Russia last year, and I did a debate with uh, uh, two other Tajik 
missionaries that heard that I was in town wanted to debate me, and so we'd set up a debate on a Sunday afternoon for three hours, all in Russian. I had to use three different translators to get through the debate, and one of the first questions that came up was this question. How, Mr. Smith, can you believe that God can enter time and space? How could God become a man? How could God become one of us? How could God become a polluted human being like us, weak like us? How dare you say God could become weak? And I just started shaming them. Shame on you. You tell me that God is omnipotent, do you not? You tell me that God can do anything. And here you're telling me that God cannot do something as simple as becoming a man. Shame on you. Because in saying he cannot become a man, you've taken away his omnipotence. Don't ever do that to God. Of course God can become a man. It's simple for God to become a man. Listen, he created us for heaven's sakes. If he created us, could he not participate in his own creation? Absolutely he can. And if you do not allow him to become a man, then you've taken away his omnipotence and you are starting to tell God what he can and cannot do. I get sick and tired of Muslims telling me that God cannot eat, he cannot drink, he cannot go to the bathroom. What kind of God can do those things? Of course God can do that. My God can, maybe their God cannot. And I said to these two deists, listen, if you believe God can't become a man, then you've got a pretty small God. You need a bigger God. You better come on home. Better come back home to my God. My God can become a man anytime he wants to. He's big enough to become a man. Come on, get a bigger God. Come on home. We've got the big God. You want a big God? We've got him. Come on back to that God. Because he did become a man at the very beginning. Who was there in the Garden of Eden walking and talking with Adam and Eve? That was God. Who was there in front of the tent of Mamre eating with Abraham? That was God. Who was there wrestling with Jacob? That was God. Who was in front of the Israelites there as a pillar of fire at nine, a pillar of cloud in the day? That was God. In fact, Hold on a minute. You're telling me God cannot become, come down to earth? Let's open up the Quran and let's open up to Surah 20, Ayah 14. Because in Surah 20, Ayah 14, you will see that God, Allah, it says, this is Allah who is talking from within the burning bush to Moses. When Moses goes up to see what that fire is in chapter 20, in Surah 20, by the time he gets to verse 14, the voice comes out of the bush, says, take off your shoes, you are on hallowed ground, this is Allah who is speaking to you. So who was in that burning bush, according to the Quran, if it wasn't God? And that burning bush is on earth. So stop telling me that God can't come to enter time and space. Of course he can. He does so in your Quran. I get tired of Muslims always telling God what he can and cannot do. And I think we need to shame them. I shamed these two diasts on the night, and they finally had to leave the question, go to another question. They never came back to it again. And you could see their problem. I would have a problem if I were in their place. Ah, oh, God can certainly become a man. It's easy for him to come a, become a man. We need to let him tell us what he can and cannot do. The next question, of course, is probably the biggest one, and that's the one concerning the Trinity. Now, be careful here. Be careful with this one. I have never met a Muslim that has been convinced by the Trinity. I have never met anybody that has been converted by the Trinity. In 25 years working with Muslims, I have never met a Muslim that is persuaded by my opinion concerning the Trinity. Therefore, I, I've given up telling them my opinion. And I think you need to be careful that you don't do the same. Now, obviously, we don't teach much about the Trinity. It's not very often that we have speakers that speak on it on Sunday, after, Sunday mornings. Uh, there's not an awful lot that's written about it. Most Christians I know don't know how to defend it or let alone define it. And it's for that reason that we need to be careful that we should not introduce it in our conversations. It will be introduced soon enough by the Muslims. And here's what you can do to help you. What I tell my students is this. Anytime they want to talk about the Trinity or start challenging the Trinity, ask them one simple question. Tell them, listen, I'm not going to give you my opinion of the Trinity because you're not going to trust my opinion. And I don't trust my opinion. And therefore, we're just going to waste our time. 
So rather than give you my opinion of the Trinity, I'm going to ask you to come back to Scripture, and I'm going to show you where, that, where the Trinity, not the Word, because the Word doesn't exist in the, in the Bible. That Word is not there. Where God as one works as three persons. Where God all the way through the Bible as one works as three persons. In fact, I'm going to go to the first book, the first chapter, the very first verse and show that. And then I'm going to go step with you verse by verse by verse right through Genesis and Exodus to show you just how replete the Bible is with references of God as one working as three. Are you willing to come to the Bible with me? Now see how they answer. If they answer, yes, I would like to, that's fine, I want to see what you've got, then you have got a good conversation. Then you can roll with that person, because that person is serious. You know they really want the answer. Go with it. Go with them. Work with them. Open up your Bible, and make sure you know where these references are. Now, we do have a paper written by Dr. Paul Blackham there at All Souls that we give out to people. It's probably the best paper, I think, that's written on this subject, where he starts with the book of Genesis, goes to the book of Exodus, and he goes from chapter to chapter to chapter to show you where God as one works as three. It's great. It's one of the best book papers I have heard. He presented at Lausanne in 2000, and it was the most popular paper presented at Lausanne Conference. Now, these, every Christian needs to have these references under their belt. If you don't have them in your head, write them in your Bible. Put them in the margins so they're there. So you can go from chapter to chapter and help your Muslim friend walk them through the Bible to find out these triune phrases. Then, you can, then once you've gone through the Old Testament, then only then go to the New Testament. Start with the Old Testament because that's where a place that they can trust. Once you have done that, that's good. Now what if they say no, they don't want to go to the Bible? Well, then, then say, listen, then you're wasting our time. You're wasting my time. Because I'm not going to sit here and tell you about the Trinity unless I go to Scripture. Because it's my Scripture, it's my Scripture where I find my theology. It's my Scripture where I find out about who God is. It's in Scripture that I find the triune nature of God. If you're not willing to come to the Bible with me, then let's talk about something else. Let's stop wasting our time on the Trinity. Let's talk about the nature of God. Let's talk about Allah of the Quran versus Yahweh of the Bible. Or let's talk about Issa in the Quran versus Jesus in the Bible. Let's talk about something we can agree upon. Okay? That will save you an awful lot of wasted time. Now, if you want to go in and help them out with helping to understand how the triune God, nature of God works, then do so. One of, the, one of the ways I like to do that is to use something they understand to begin with. Why not use the names they have for God that we see in the Quran? Go to your Muslim friend and say, listen... You Muslims, you have names for God in the Quran, do you not? In fact, we know that the, the Quran has 99 names for God, and these names define him. These are his eternal names. And there are three names that are more popular than any other, and they are Al-Rahman, uh, um, Al-Rahim, and Al-Wadud. Al-Rahman is the compassionate one. Al-Rahim is the per merciful one. Al-Wadud is the loving one, Right? These are the three names that we see around 25 times listed in the Quran. These are his most important names, certainly his most popular. They are his eternal names, which suggest to me that they are therefore the ones that we should zero in on. And let's look at those three names. Rahman, Al-Rahim, Al-Wadud. Compassionate, merciful, loving. If they are his most important names and they are eternal names, then I would assume, therefore, that there's an object to them. Because compassion, mercy, and love require an object, do they not? You have to love someone. You have to love something, have compassion on someone, or something the same with mercy. All three words require an object. If these are his eternal names, then where is the object of his love before we were created? Before Adam and Eve existed, where was the object of his love? 
Now, obviously, there wasn't any. God is one. He is a monad. There is no object of his love, which suggests to me that Allah of the Quran needs man, he needs humanity, basically, to define who he is. He has no love until man was created. There was no love until, or compassion or mercy until man was created. Therefore, he's dependent on us for his names. You, 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 can you see the problem with that? We don't have that problem, do we? No, because God in the triune nature, God in the Trinity has always been loving. God in his triune nature has always been compassionate and merciful. Therefore, it has always existed in the triuneness of God. Therefore, the God of the Bible is not dependent on us. He's not dependent on us for his names, nor for his nature. What's more than that, we are loving and compassionate and merciful, are we not, as human beings? And now we know where that comes from, because in Genesis 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, it says that we're made in his image. If we're made in his image, we're made with this imageness in him. We're made with compassion and love and mercy built into us, because it's already there in the Godhead. So where do the Muslims get their love and their compassion and their mercy? Where do they get it from? Not from their God, because their God is just one, unloving, unmerciful, un basically uncompassionate. Because true love, true mercy, and true uh, compassion, all of these three, especially love itself, is unconditional. When you look at the love of Allah, you will see he's only loving to those who love him. It's a conditioned love. When you look at the love of God, you will see it's unconditional. We see that in the in prodigal son, where the father allows his son to take his riches and squander them in a far land. But he never stops loving his son. He waits for his son to come home, does he not? Waiting day after day, waiting and seeing the son come from a long distance. And when he comes there, he runs out, grabs him, hugs him, brings him home, has a feast, proving that he loved the son completely, unconditionally, has always loved. So that's the imageness of our father in us. God the Father has always loved us. It's an unconditional love that could only come from a triune named God, a God who is always unconditionally loved within the triune Godhead, proving that we as well also love unconditionally. That makes sense then why we as families in Christian families always have unconditional love. It's exemplified in our communities. It's exemplified in our culture. Whereas the God of Islam that is one that has no, no model of that, the God of Islam who never comes to earth, who never comes and suffers or sacrifices for another, like the God of Christianity does, that kind of God, therefore, models the kind of people, the Muslims, that represent him. And so Muslim families are basically modeled on their God, are they not? With a father who is a, basically a master over the family. And when the father dies, the older son takes on that responsibility. So is their Islamic state based on that principle. The caliph at the top has absolute rule. The ulema underneath him, it models their God. We model our God in his capacity to love and, and mercy and have com and love, uh, mercy and compassion. There you go. They model their God, who though they call him that, have no example of it. Where is Allah compassionate and mercy? I don't see it. But I see it in God the Father sending God the Son to die for his created on earth. All of us unconditionally. There is the beauty of this whole argument. So you can use their own paradigm, use their own scriptures to introduce the triune nature of God. And the application of that as we who are relational. Because what we're talking about here is relationship, aren't we? Our God is a relational God. That's what love means. That's what compassion means. It basically defines relationship. Therefore, if our God is relational, then we're relational, made in his image, whereas their God has no relationship. 
And since he has no relationship, so he is not relational with his slaves any more than a Muslim family is relational. It's a top-to-bottom relationship. Ours is a reciprocating relationship that is back and forth from God to man and back up to God again. Ours is a relationship where God comes and incarnates himself, comes down to our level, and walks and talks with us, as we saw in the hermeneutical key. Now, if you want to play the Mickey with Muslims, you dare to do this, go one step further. I don't know if you should, but I'm just going to give this to you in case you want to uh, feel brave enough to do it. I like to do it, and it's fun to do, and that is, why don't you look at the Trinity in the Quran? Show them their own Trinity. They have a hard time with our Trinity. Throw it right back in their laps and say, listen, have you ever looked at the Quran? Have you ever looked at Surah 13, Ayah 16, and um, Surah 14, Ayah 10? Because there you will find the reference to Allah, the Creator. So that's the first person, the Trinity, right there. He is the Creator. Allah is the Creator. But then you go to Surah 50, Ayah 16, and Surah 56, Ayah 83. Surah 50, Ayah 16 especially, talks about the Hru. The Hru would be the Spirit of God, much like the Hruah in Hebrew. The Spirit of God, who is also God, but He is as close to you as your juggler vein, which means He is on earth. Now, when Muslims say, if Jesus is God and He's on earth, who's running the universe while He's on earth? They've got the same dilemma, because there's a duality implied in this verse. If God the Father, or, I'm sorry, not Father, dare I say His Father, God the Creator, Allah, is in heaven, is always in heaven, then what is the Spirit doing on earth? If the Spirit, who is also God, is on earth, is co-eternal with God, if He's on earth, who's running the universe? Aha, bingo, we got them. They've got the same dilemma. So, introduce that to them. You've already got a duality there. God, the Allah, who is the creator, who is in heaven, and his spirit, who is on earth, simultaneously. Two different places, two different aspects of God. How they want to define it, I don't know. Is that two different persons of God? Already, there's a duality, but it gets even better. Surah 85, Ayah 22, stipulates that this book here, the Quran, is derived from these eternal tablets that have always existed in heaven. So therefore, it is uncreated. The Quran cannot be created. It must be uncreated. Which means, which implies to me, that, that those tablets that are in heaven, they have always existed. That means they're co-eternal with God as well. So you have God, the creator, the first person. God, his spirit, who's on earth, second person. And God, his word. These eternal tablets, third person. Ay, ay, ay. I've just created a trinity. I've not created it. The Quran has. It's always been there. Now, this was a dilemma back in the ninth century. There was a group called the Mutazilites who brought this up. They said, hold on a minute. We've got a problem with Surah 85.22. How can you have a tablet that is eternal? How can you have a book, a Quran, that is co-eternal? Because if you have an eternal book that is always there, as preserved, always there in heaven, that means you have something that is co-eternal with God. You have just committed the unpardonable sin, which is shirk. Shirk means anytime you elevate anything or anyone with God, that is unforgivable. Nobody can be elevated to the status of God. No thing or anybody can be elevated to the status of God. In elevating the Quran to eternal with God, you have now committed shirk. They brought this up, and you can see it caused a huge stir in the Kurds of Mamun, and the Khajarites, who were in power at that time, persecuted the Matazilites, killed them all off, executed them, and then they closed down Ijtihad, which was interpretation of Scripture from the 10th century on. And for a thousand years, nobody was permitted to interpret that verse. The reason why is because Muslims cannot have a created Quran. Because if this book is ever created, it then becomes limited. It then becomes open to error. 
Therefore, it has to be uncreated. That's why Surah 85.22 has to be supported. And by doing that, they have now created three persons of the Trinity. But stop yourself and ask one simple question. How are you going to defend that one? How do you defend a tablet co-eternal with God? Thank God I don't have to defend that Trinity. It makes no sense in the world to me. I can understand the, the, the dilemma of the Matazalites. Pity the poor Matazalites. Pity the fact what happened to them. They were all eradicated. They were destroyed. They were executed because they asked a very good question. How can any book, how can any tablet be co-eternal with God? No, we don't have that problem with our trinity. Oh, I'm so glad I have our trinity that we can fall back on. The triune nature of God, who makes sense of who I am, who makes sense of who you are, who makes sense of what relationships are all about, who makes sense of what love, compassion, mercy, it goes on and on and on. It basically, it makes sense of everything that's beautiful, that's valuable to me, I can now see in the Godhead. The triune Godhead, who has always been all of these things eternally, we don't have to worry about defending that kind of triune God. Pity poor Muslim with their trinity. Let's move on then and let's talk about the cross because this is the central, as far as I'm concerned, this is probably the greatest question that the Muslims ask me about. And it's, it's the question, if they don't ask me, I ask them. And that is, what are we going to do with the cross? Because it's central to everything I believe. If Christ did not die on the cross, then the whole scope of history comes crashing down. All those prophecies pointing to that fact. There are over 300 prophecies that point to that one man who is going to come to die. The fact that even God himself there in Genesis 3 verse 15 turns to Eve and says, Someone from your line, you're going to be my Eve tonight. Someone from your line is going to come. He is going to come and crush the head of Satan. If that did not happen, then I am damned. And so are you. And so is everybody watching. We're all damned. And yet Muslims are the first to confront this issue. Now, there are some number of problems with this. They take their reference from Surah 4, 157, Surah 4, 157, and Surah 4, 158, which stipulate and are very clear that Jesus did not die. They thought it so, but another was given his image. Now, there are a number of problems. The first problem is the Quranic confusion. There is a confusion within the Quran on this. Why? Because Surah 19, Ayah 33, contradicts that. Surah 19, Ayah 33, talks in the third person about Jesus. No, it talks in the first person, excuse me, where Jesus himself says this, Blessed be me the day I was born, the day I die, present continuous, and the day I rise again. That contradicts Surah 4, 157, doesn't it? Because it seems pretty clear to me that from Surah 19, 33, that Jesus died and rose again. How do Muslims get out of that? Well, Muslims will say, no, 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 no. That has nothing to do with the past tense. It has nothing to do with what Jesus did back then. He's going to come a second time, according to the traditions. He's going to come a second time. And when he comes a second time, he's going to come and live on earth. Some say he's going to live for 43 years. He's going to marry, have three kids. Or some say he's have many as seven kids. He's going to destroy all the crucifixions, crucifixes. He's going to destroy all the pigs. And then he's going to die at that time and then rise normally as a human. But that's a future tense. So this is referring to the future coming. The problem is that this is present continuous. Look at the Arabic. There's no sah before it. They have to put a sah before it to make a future. There is no future in the verse. What's more, if you look at verse 15 in the same chapter, in Surah 19, verse 15, it refers to John the Baptist, Yahya. And it says the exact same thing to, about John the Baptist, but this time in the third person. Blessed be he, the day that he was born, the day that he dies, present continuous, and the day he rises again. Now, we know good and well that John did come, he did die, and he rose, he rose, he'll rise again at the, second, at, at the end of time. So, obviously, if it works for John, it has to work for Jesus. 
Well, I'm not going to sit there and quibble about the Muslims on that. I realize that they have a problem with this. That's their own, that's their own uh, Quranic confusion. I leave that confusion with them. I know that every Muslim believes that Jesus did not die. Jesus did not die. Not all of them believe that it wasn't he on the cross. The Ahmadiyyas believe he was on the cross. But you've already got that Quranic confusion. The second problem is a theological confusion. If someone was given his image, then that stands directly in contradiction to Surah 6, Ayah 164 and Surah 53, Ayah 38, which stipulates very clearly that nobody can take on the sin, nobody can take on the guilt of another. Those verses were included in the Quran basically to abrogate or to eradicate any possibility of Jesus taking on our sin. But in doing that, that also abrogates and eradicates the possibility of a man taking on Jesus' sin. Because if Jesus was not on the cross, someone else was taking his place. Someone else was given his image. And in giving his image, they are then taking on his guilt, are they not? Therefore, there's a contradiction. There's a theological confusion here. Thirdly, there's an extra-biblical confusion, and that is a historical confusion. What do I mean by this? Well, any historian worth their salt does not go to the Quran to find out whether Jesus was on that cross or not. They go to other extra-biblical evidence. They go to men like Thallus. Thallus, a Greek historian, who was actually debating with Phlegon back in 50 AD, and at the, basically 20 years after Christ's death, they were debating about the crucifixion of Jesus, and they were debating whether or not on that day the earth shook and the sun went dark. They were very clear, they knew very well that that was Jesus was on the cross. They had no doubt that that was, not, that was Jesus or not. We also know uh, that... Um, Josephus, in about 80 to 90 AD, the latter pattern of the first century, Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote very clearly why he was living in there in Rome, that that was Jesus who died on the cross. Tacitus, who is a Roman historian, writing in 80 AD, he mentions the death of Jesus. So you have a Greek historian, a Jewish historian, and a Roman historian, all three of them within the first century, all writing that that was Jesus on the cross. They had no problem admitting that that was Jesus. Now, if you're going to have a Muslims believing that that was not Jesus, their only testimony is 600 years later. I'll go with the, the, the first century testimony because it's closest to the event. So they've got a problem, a confusion, and certainly a contradiction with the historical record. Fourthly, what about the eyewitnesses? See, there were people that were there at the cross, were they not? John, the favorite disciple of Jesus, was at the cross, was he not? He was right there. Jesus talked to him. He told John to take care of his mother. In fact, if that were the case, what about Mary? She was at the cross. Mary knew Jesus intimately. Goodness sake, she birthed him. She knew him for 33 years. John had known him for the last three years. They both knew who was on the cross. They both knew that was Jesus. If it had been someone else, don't you think they would have recognized it? For that matter, put yourself in the man's place. Whoever that man was that was given his image, don't you think he would have said something about it? Hey, guys, listen. It's not me. Believe me. Look at, No, don't look at me. Listen to my voice. Mary, you know me. You birthed me. Come on, ask me any question. Any question, I won't be able to answer to prove it's not me. I mean, certainly he would have said something. I know I'm joking about it, but can you see the seriousness of what we're talking about? If someone else was given that image, they would complain. I would complain. You would complain. Anybody would complain. And certainly Mary and John would have known that that was not Jesus on the cross. We don't hear any reference to that whatsoever. So that's the fourth problem. And then... Fifthly, and this is probably the biggest problem. This is the one that I have the biggest problem with. This is the moral contradiction. This is the moral confusion. Stop and think. If Jesus was not on the cross and another was there that took his place, then what was Jesus doing three days later, coming up to the upper room, 
going in front of the disciples and claiming that it was he, showing them the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet when Thomas questioned him a week later. What kind of prophet would claim something he'd never done? Why is it Jesus never bothered to tell any of them that it was not he on the cross? Why did he spend the next 50 days appearing before 500 people claiming for every case that it was he that was on the cross when he wasn't? And what's more, here's the worst problem. What kind of God puts another man on the cross and then doesn't bother to tell anybody? Doesn't tell any of the disciples? Doesn't tell anybody for 600 years? And then finally, 600 years later, suddenly he gets in his mind, uh-oh, I better do something about this. Let me go tell that illiterate man down there who is a camel herder. Let me go tell him that it was actually, it was not Jesus, it was another man. Let's tell that man and hopefully he will change the world. What kind of God does that? That's a deceitful God. I don't want anything to do with a God like that. I don't see that kind of God at all in this book. In this book. God does not deceive. No, he does not deceive for 600 years. He does not leave millions of people to perdition. He does not have a whole church formed who died. Every one of the disciples died believing that that was Jesus on the cross, except for John. But what's more, the Muslims still have the same dilemma that everybody else has, that the Jews have, that the Romans have, that the atheists have, that the agnostics have, and that is, where is the body? No one has ever found the body. If it was not Jesus, then why couldn't they just simply show the body? Can you see the problems if Jesus was not on the cross? Thank God we don't have these problems. I've never heard a Muslim that can come back on any one of these five problems. They are confusions, I understand it, and I leave it to them. So who is the real Jesus? That's the next question. Which Jesus is the real Jesus? Well, the Muslims say that this Issa is the real Jesus. But take a look at Issa here. Issa is nothing more than a construct. He's a much later construct. He's a construct that was basically constructed in the 5th and 6th century. Because when you look at the 73 references to Jesus in the Quran, you will see that even his name is confused. The name for Jesus in Arabic should be Yesua. But it's Issa. Where does Issa come from? Well, Issa is actually a Syriac construct, which seems to suggest where much of the stories come about Jesus. And that's true. When you look and you'll see that a lot of the stories that come from Jesus come from the Syriac documents, primarily from the Diatessaron. And the name for Jesus in, in Syriac is Iesu, which is very similar to Issa. Iesu, the Arabic Issa. But why didn't the writers put the Arabic name for Jesus, Yeshua? Because most of their texts were not from Arabic. Most of their texts were barred from other sources. Docetic texts, Nestorian, Gnostic writings, monarchic writings. The Nestorians believed that Jesus was a God-chosen human. We see that echoed in Surah 3, Surah 4, Surah 5, and Surah 19. They were a 5th century construct. The monarchics believed that God could have no children. We'll see, we see that echoed in Surah 4, 171, and Surah 19, Ayah 34. The Docetists, a sectarian group in the first century, believed that Jesus did not or could not die. We see that echoed in the verse we've just been talking about in Surah 4, 156 to 158. And then this idea that Mary was part of the Trinity, or the confusion of Mary and Jesus and God were part of the Trinity, that we see in Surah 5, 116, is a Coloridian idea from the fourth century, or the, or the idea of Mariolatry, that Mary was elevated to the status of divinity. But that was, these are all sectarian beliefs. None of these were beliefs from the first century. So the Jesus, the Issa that we see in the Quran, is much a later rendition 
redaction of Jesus that was then put back on the first century. But what about the Jesus that's in the Bible? Well, to understand the environment that Jesus would have lived in in the first century, we need to go back to the first century. We need to go back to the literature from that time period. We need to go to the Qumran community, which existed prior to the first century in the first century B.C. The Essene community, who lived in Qumran, excuse me. We need to go to their writings. We need to go to the intertestamental books that have been passed down, that are now incorporated into the Catholic canon. They were written in the first four centuries before, uh, before, the, before Jesus came. Or we need to go to Josephus' writings. He was writing in the late first, early second century. Josephus, the, the Hebrew historian that was writing there in Rome. And we look at the writings and we find three things that they all agree upon. And that is that in the first century, <clears throat> the Jews at that time were trying to create an identity for themselves. And they did that by looking at the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God based on the Mosaic principles, on the Mosaic laws. The kingdom of God based on the Mosaic laws, but also all focused on the temple. And those are the three categories that all the writings talk about. The kingdom of God, the Mosaic laws, and the temple. Because they gave them identity to the Jews living in the first century vis-a-vis -vis all the surrounding nations. Now stop and ask, what does Jesus talk about more often than any other in the Gospels? Does he not argue about the kingdom of God? Does he not argue and say, for you have heard it say the kingdom of God is, is a place? Does he not say in Matthew 18, 20, that where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am with you? He redefined the kingdom of God as a relationship rather than a place? Does he not spend much of the time arguing against the Mosaic laws, about the, about the Sabbath laws? Many times over and over again, you have heard it say, but I now say, basically redefining the laws based, fulfilled in him. And does he not say of the temple that you destroy the te temple and three days I will build it again? Saying that he will be the temple and the reaction he got from the Jews? Jesus spends all his time attacking those three identity markers. The kingdom, the laws, and the temple. The very thing we would expect him to do in the first century. Proving that the Jesus of the Bible is a first century construct. He's in the right place at the right time saying the right things to the right people about the right subjects which places this Jesus in the first century, this is the true historical Jesus, whereas the Jesus, the Issa of this book, is nowhere near the first century. He says nothing about the kingdom. He says nothing about the temple. He says nothing about the laws. He spends most of his time creating little birds out of clay, blowing on them, letting them flying up in the air. Spending most of the time, most of the time trying to tell people apologizing for claiming to be God. This is not a first century Jesus. This is nothing more than a fourth or fifth century construct. They've got the wrong Jesus. We've got the real Jesus. Amen. Good on it, isn't it? Now, what about the seeming inferiority of Jesus? This is another question that comes up all the time. When you look at the references here, Jesus says over and over again, why do you call me good? Only God is good. How do you know the end of time? Only God knows the end of times. He's there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays and he prostrates himself before God, seeming to show that he was inferior to God the Father. And Muslims say, how can he be God if he's inferior to God, if he has to submit to God, if he has to pray to God, if he doesn't know the end of time, and he doesn't even call himself good. He doesn't even equate himself with God, proving over and over again that he sees himself as a subliminal God, a basically, if, if any God, a subliminal uh, partner. Now, the way to answer that is very simple. There are two ways you could answer that. One is to open up to, uh, Philippians 2 and just read from verse 6 to 11 where it's very clear that Jesus claimed for himself something, equality, nothing to be grasped, but humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a man, 
took an appearance, the form of a man, and humbled himself, came to earth, and died on the cross. Now, I'm paraphrasing it real quickly because I don't have it open before me. But here's a perfect example of exactly what God came to do in the form of Jesus. When the second person of the Trinity took on the form of Jesus, he humbled himself, became a man. Therefore, he took on all the limitations of the man. He took on all the limitations of humanity. That's one way to answer it. So, therefore, we would understand in that capacity as a man, he did not know the end of times. He would not be able to do all the things that he could do in the other capacity because he was taken on the limitations of manhood. When he went up and was put up on the temple and he was given those, um, uh, when he was tempted by Satan, those had to be real temptations as a man. Otherwise, they would make no sense. That's one way to answer it. A second way to answer it is that all the way through history, always God the Father has always sent God the Son who has always been subordinate to God the Father working through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the subordination was something out of choice, but it was part of the function of God, the second person of the Trinity, but it never implied inferiority any more than I and the Queen, or though we have different functions, I am any more inferior to the Queen. I cannot live in Buckingham Palace. I cannot open Parliament like she can. There's a lot of functions she can do that I cannot do, which seem to suggest that I'm inferior to her in my function. That is true. But is she any more of a human than I am? No, we're totally equal as human beings. And just as so as the God, the Father, and God, the Holy Spirit, though they have different functions, does not mean that one is inferior to the other. You might even say that God, the Father, who always stays in heaven, and God, the Son, who comes to earth, the fact that God, the Father, cannot come to earth may make him inferior. It's a matter of definition. All right? Now... How can we know who a true prophet is? Muslims say, listen, we accept Jesus Christ. Why don't you accept Muhammad? We've already gone through that. I think more enough, we don't have to repeat that. I think what we need to do is the next question that comes up always right after that. And that is, what are we going to do with Ishmael or Isaac? Who is the true line? Let, to do that, let's open up to Genesis 17. Genesis 17, I think, is very clear, mainly because... Abraham asked the very same question. He says there in Genesis 17, what about my son? What are you going to do about if only Ishmael might live under your blessing in verse 18? Verse 19, then God said, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. Now, he says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. This is with Isaac for his descendants after him. Verse 20, and as for Ishmael, I have heard you, I will bless him, I will make him fruitful, and he will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But, in verse 21, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. I think that's very clear. I don't think we need to iterate that. As far as God was concerned, his covenant is with Isaac. We've talked about this before. We don't need to go in over and over again. It's very clear that God had only chosen one line from which he was going to create his covenant, and that was the Isaiah line. We know in Genesis 22, verse 2, 12, and verse 16, that God asks Abraham to take his one and only son three times in those three verses, proving that he only considered Isaac to be the real son of Abraham. Now, we also see in Genesis 16 exactly what's going to happen to Ishmael where you see the prophecy of the angel talking to Hagar says, your son Ishmael will be a wild ass of a man. He will be against all his brothers and all his brothers will be against him, which seems to be exactly coming to, play, to, to fruition in our own present day. Take a look and see the descendants of Ishmael. Are they not wild asses of men? Quote, unquote. Are they not against all their brothers and all their brothers against them? 
Samuel Huntington may have that famous book, Clash of Civilization, that he wrote in 1996. And he said, take a look at the Muslim world today. Look at its borders, and you will see that Muslim nations, every Muslim nation on earth, has bloody borders. It is in conflict with all its neighbors, and it's in conflict with itself. And that's the case right across the Muslim world. Exactly what we see in this prophecy in Genesis 16. Galatians 4, I think, is even more clear. When in Galatians 4, Paul gives a comparison between the two covenants represented by the two women. One covenant represented by Hagar is the covenant of the slave woman who comes from Arabia. It says in verses 22 to 25 of chapter 4 of Galatians. And then in verse 28 to 31, it then compares it with the free woman who comes from Sarah. The, the people, the lineage that comes from Sarah are people of the free woman. And whereas the slave child persecuted the free child, you are to have nothing to do with the slave woman, Paul says. The slave woman who comes from Arabia. You have nothing to do with it, for you are people of the free woman. We're, ha we're to have nothing to do with the descendants of Ishmael. We're to have nothing to do with Islam. I don't know if Paul ever realized how applicable these verses were going to be in the future. I had, I don't, I'm sure he didn't know how, how exactly the, the descendants of Ishmael and Sarah, how exactly they are going to be in conflict with each other, as we're seeing today. One persecuting the other. Certainly we're part of that relationship. And when you look at the Christian world, how it's being persecuted by Muslims all over the world, you will see that that is being carried out even as we speak. Let's move on. Muslims always ask and say, how can Christianity be true when you look at many of your church leaders? Look and see how they, they are so sinful men. There are many sinful priests. They're in the news every day, sinful pastors, men who fall away from God. And I always ask my Muslim friend whenever they ask me this, so that means that there is a standard by which you're measuring them by. There is a standard that you assume that all priests and pastors should hold to. And that standard you must be taking from somewhere. And I assume that standard is coming from here. Thank God you see that priests and that pastors are sinful. Yes, we're all sinful. But you know, don't just stop there. Look all the way through the Bible. It's full of sinful people. David was sinful. Moses was sinful. Noah was sinful. They were all sinful. God does use sinful people. We are all failed individuals. And even more so, the fact that the God does use sinful people gives me hope because as a sinful person, I know that God can use me as well. In fact, God can use you, any one of you. No, it has nothing to do with us. It has us to do with what is it that God requires of us. And it's God in us that makes us who we are. The work we do is not our work. It's what God does through us. Now, of course, the next question is, well, what about the peace? The idea that... <clears throat> You claim that Christianity is religion of peace. Yet when you look around the world, you will see that everywhere, almost everywhere you look, you will see a lot, an awful lot of violence. Especially, especially when you look at the Crusades. And they always hit me with the Crusades. Now, you're going to be my Muslim. You're going to be Abdul for now, okay? You hit me and you say, listen, what about the Crusades? How can you say Christianity is religion of peace when you look at the Crusades? And I'll ask you real quickly, Abdul, what is it you don't like about the Crusades? And you answer me back and you say, well, what I don't like about the Crusades is you have one people who were using violence to eradicate another people in the name of their God. And I'll say, shake hands. And I'll shake hands with you, Abdul. I always do this with my Muslim friends. I say, I agree with you. No man, no person should ever use violence for their God for any religious reasons. You should never use violence. 
And I say, well, let's just ask one simple question before we move on. Abdul, what were the crusaders doing in Jerusalem? They were trying to push the Muslims out because they believed that that was their holy city. It was a holy city for them. So therefore, they wanted to claim it back for God. Now, let's say uh, the Americans were to come and take over Mecca. Would you as a Muslim, would you not want to take all your Muslim brothers and go and attack the Muslims to get them out of Mecca? Would you not be willing to do that? And would you not be right in doing that? As a Muslim, you'd have all the right in the world to do that. Why? Because Mecca is holy ground, as Jerusalem for the Crusaders was holy ground. So in some ways, the very thing the Crusaders were doing is something you would do if the same thing happened to you in Mecca. So be careful about criticizing it, because then you would have to criticize yourself. But that's not really what I want to talk about, because I still don't believe that the Crusaders should have done what they did. The reason I don't believe they should have done what they did is because I don't go to the Crusaders from my paradigm. If I know how I'm to act today, there's only one person I can go to, and that is Jesus Christ. And I need to ask Jesus Christ what he would have done to the Crusades. And I know exactly what Jesus would have done. I can see that because I knew what happened when violence was used in his presence with Peter there in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 52, he turns towards Peter. He tells Peter to put away the sword. And he says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And if he tells that to Peter, I know he's going to tell the Crusaders the very same things. So therefore, he condemns the Crusades. And if he condemns the Crusades, I have to condemn the Crusades. But Abdul, why do you condemn the Crusades? Because if you're going to condemn the Crusades, Abdul, then I want you to go back to the 7th century. I want you to go back to Medina. I want you to go between the years of 624 to 627. Those 624, 620, those three years when your prophet Muhammad threw out the Jews living in Medina, first the Banu Kainuka family, then the Banu Ndidir family, and then the Banu Quraiza family in 627, he took 800 men, slit their throats, killed them all in one afternoon, took the women as concubines, the men and the children as slaves. He basically committed genocide to one people called the Jews. If you're going to condemn the Crusades, I want you to condemn what your prophet did. I know you can't. I've never heard a Muslim in the world that can condemn his prophet. You're not able to condemn your prophet, and if you're not able to condemn your prophet, then you have no right condemning the Crusades. You cannot condemn the Crusades, but I can. I am the only one that can condemn the Crusades. Any Christian can condemn the Crusades because we know that whenever anybody uses violence in God's name, that is wrong. But your prophet did that. So who are you to go around condemning the Crusades? Don't ever condemn the Crusades. Let me do it. And I will condemn it whenever the church uses violence, I will condemn it. Because my Lord Jesus Christ does not allow me to use violence. Now let me ask you, Abdul, where is the real, true religion of peace? Do you have peace or do we have peace? Does your prophet have peace or does my Lord Jesus Christ have peace? See, here's the beauty of this whole argument. I can start preaching the gospel, can't I? To my good friend Abdul. And I do it all the time. It's so easy. I love it when they condemn the Crusades, because by using the Crusades, they have allowed me to preach about my peace. They have allowed me to preach about my Lord Jesus Christ, and they have allowed me to go and start condemning them because they dare to bring up the question, but to bring them to introduce the gospel into the question. More than that, I know everybody wants peace. Abdul, I know you want peace. I know Tony Blair and George Bush. Now it's Gordon Brown and George Bush. I know they all want peace. I know most of the Muslims I meet want peace, but you're not going to be able to find it in this book here. You're not going to be able to find it, spurs certainly in the Medinan surahs, and you're not going to be able to find it with the Prophet Muhammad. You're going to have to come home. You're going to have to come back to my bus. You're going to have to come back to my gospel. You're going to have to come back to my Jesus Christ. You're going to have to come home. Now, you say, well, what about the Old Testament? 
What about the Old Testament? Look at the, look at the violence you see there, you say. Look at, look at Joshua chapter 6, verse 21, where you see Joshua was supposed to go into Jericho and to kill all men, women, and children, and even animals. That's violent. And it was God that was telling him to do that. God was telling him to be violent. But then you have Matthew 26, verse 52, that I've just quoted, where Jesus is saying to Peter, put away your sword. There seems to be a contradiction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. We seem to have two different gods. And you're right, it seems to suggest that. But let me tell you, they're not two different gods, it's two different peoples. It's two different situations. It's two different time periods. One is 1400 B.C., the other is the first century A.D., in 1400 BC, God had a reason to use violence. In fact, you will see, even you admit that God had a reason to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you realize that? It's in your Quran. You know that God destroyed every woman, men, and child. He destroyed everything, all living things, by draining down sulfur on those two cities. You have no problem with that. So why are you having a problem with Jericho? The reason you're having a problem is you feel that we're being contradictory, and that's a good question. But I want to ask you, if God was doing this in 1400 B.C., do you, under, do you know the reason why he was doing it in 1400 B.C.? Do you realize that he was trying to create a place, a land, a kingdom for the children of Israel so that they could prepare themselves to meet the Messiah, to include and, and enjoy the Messiah, to basically get ready for the Messiah, the God who was going to be Emmanuel, God with us, God himself when he was going to come to earth? In order to do that, he had to provide them a safe environment. They had had 400 years of captivity. If you look at the context, you will see that he had to create and eradicate all the evil influences. And I like to use the example of my own sons. I have a 7-year-old, I'm sorry, a 10-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 21-year-old. And my 10-year-old, I have to treat just like God had to treat those Israelites back then. I have to protect my 10-year-old. I have to make sure that they, he is secured, that he is sequestered, that he has no evil influences around him. Therefore, I don't let him go outside by himself. I'm a good father in doing that. I have lots of rules and regulations for him that I don't have for my 17-year-old. When Christ came 2,000 years ago, when God had 1,400 years later, came down in the form of Christ and fulfilled everything that he had promised to those back there in 1400 B.C., fulfilled in Jesus Christ, he gave a whole new set of regulations. Regulations that were not violent. Regulations that did away with the sword. There was no longer any need for the sword because the kingdom he was establishing would not be a kingdom that would be a place. It would be a relationship. It would be a relationship between him and his people where there are two or three gathered. Matthew 18, 20. There I am. It's a new kingdom. It's a new covenant. It's a new testament. It's a whole new set of laws. The people had changed. God had not. Any more than I have changed as a father because I treat my 17-year-old with a whole new set of laws that I don't treat my 10-year-old. My 17-year-old can go all over the city. He can make his choices as he wants. He has a lot more freedoms, but with those freedoms come responsibilities. The same way the freedoms that we see in the New Testament that Christ brings, there are a lot more freedoms there, but there are a lot more responsibilities. That's how God works with people. That's how fathers, myself, work with my boys. The same father, am I contradictory? No. But I have two different sons who need two different sets of laws, who need two different experiences. Can you see? God works with us the same way. Now, you, Abdul, you tell me that 600 years later, God comes down again and brings another prophet, and this prophet then tells us that we can use violence again, that we must maintain and create our own state, much like the Mosaic law. Basically, you're telling me that we're made to go back to the Mosaic period. Now, as a father, would I say, take my 21-year-old and start treating him like a 10-year-old? No, absolutely not. That would be regressing. 
My 20-year-old, 21-year-old would get angry if I start treating him like a 10-year-old. He's 21 years old. He must be treated as a 20-year-old. God progresses, doesn't regress. Not the God of the, the, maybe the God of Islam regresses, but not the God of the Bible. See, have you noticed in every one of these questions, we do have an answer. In every one of these questions, not only do we have an answer, but the answer takes us back to God, doesn't it? Whether they throw the question of the Trinity at us or the sonship of Jesus Christ or the idea that God can enter time and space and become a man, it's so good to be able to answer these questions because whenever they ask these questions, we can introduce the gospel. Every time they throw a question at me, I can introduce and talk about Jesus. That's why I love apologetics. That's why I love Muslims. It's great to have Muslims in my presence. I love to work amongst them because they are asking the right questions. Every one of these questions, and we've only given you a smattering of the most important questions, but have you noticed that in every one of these questions we've been able to talk about Jesus Christ? Have you noticed that in every one of these questions we can introduce the gospel? Have you noticed that in every one of these questions, many of them we can throw right back on the Muslims? We haven't had a chance to do that tonight because we haven't had the time. But every one of these you can throw right back on their lap. They have a problem with God entering time and space, and I'd like to know what kind of God they have. They have a problem with God calling himself a son. Then I'd like to know what the Quran's going to say in 30, Surah 39, Ayah 4, which stipulates that he can have a son. They have a problem with our scriptures. I'd like to know about their scriptures. I'd like to know what manuscripts they're talking about. I'd like to know whether their Quran has changed. I'd like to know whether their Quran has been corrupted. And it has. Every one of these questions we can throw right back in their laps. Don't run away from these questions. There's no reason for us to run away. I find it fascinating. If I were to go out in the street right now and ask anybody out in the streets... If they want to talk about Jesus Christ, they'd probably laugh in my face. If they want to talk about the Bible, they'd probably laugh in my face. But if I were to find a Muslim out there, and I were to tell them that I believe that Jesus is Lord, and I believe the Bible is the Word of God, I know almost every Muslim will have an opinion about that. What's more, I know that they're going to ask me some pretty hard questions, questions just like the ones we've been talking about. These are good questions. There's no other people on earth where you can talk about Jesus from the point go. There's no other people on earth where you can talk about the Bible from the point go. Isn't it great how the Muslims, if we don't introduce it, they introduce it. Ah, don't run away from these questions. It's great to be able to talk about Jesus. Ah, it's great to be able to answer them. Folks, don't ever feel scared about the gospel. Don't ever think you don't have the answer. And if you don't have the answer, then let me tell you a real quick secret. What I always do is I say, give me a week. Give me a week. That's my favorite phrase. I used to say it all the time 25 years ago. I don't say it as much anymore because most of them we have the answer for. Give me a week. That gives you a week to go back, get up on the Internet, come back to your commentaries, go to your pastor, go back to your own notes, find out from a friend so that the next week you will be able to go back to that Muslim, be able to give him the answer, and you start learning your apologetics, building up your answers so that you will never get caught out again. If we all started doing that, found our Muslims where we are in our work or in our neighborhood or in our school, if we just find a few Muslims and start letting them throw the questions at us, we can start learning our apologetics. And we would basically, we would bring up the whole church. The church needs to know their answers because the answers are there. Thank God the Muslims are here. I think God has brought the Muslims into our presence to jack us out of our complacency, to ask these questions, because, folks, we do need to know the answers. We have the answers. There's no reason why we can't use them. And let's use these answers to introduce the gospel. They're the best way to do it. It's great, isn't it, to know that we have the truth. And it's great to know that we can show them the truth. Bring home 
the Muslims to Jesus Christ.